If you'd like to turn to uh, 1 Kings and chapter 17, if you worship here regularly, you'll know that from time to time I'm doing a series on Elijah. Elijah living at a time when the people of Israel, that nation that God had specially chosen to have a unique relationship with, a covenant loving relationship, calling them to represent God to the nations. Tragically, the nation had lost its way, lost its covenant loyalty to God, drifted away from God, expressing terrible disloyalty, going after other gods. And God, having warned them, eventually sent Elijah as one of the most confrontational prophets that he sent. To arrest their attention, he stirred Elijah to pray and he prayed that it wouldn't rain that God would just turn off the showers that gave that agricultural nation life and health and meaning and food and brought terrible, terrible difficulty upon their life and existence and having made this public proclamation it will not rain until I say so Elijah was then instructed by God to hide himself not to keep on saying it again and again. God had spoken once and now he was to hide away. And we read some weeks back how he first of all hid by a brook where he just drank from the stream and was supernaturally provided for. And then second went to the home of a widow and God said to Elijah, go to Zarephath where this widow lived. Uh, this was actually outside of Israel, uh, north of Israel. So she's not a follower of the living God, but he's to go to her and she would provide for Elijah. And when we were together last time, we saw how Elijah invited her to put her trust in the living God. And amazingly, God supernaturally provided for her. So she became acquainted with this God who provides. She became personally aware of how kind and faithful God is. And then as we read on, we're going to read the story in a moment of what happened next as Elijah is staying in that home. So we'll pick up the story from verse 8 of 1 Kings 17.8. I'm reading from the NASB, so if you're reading from a different translation, one or two of the words will differ. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose, went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there, gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she was going to get it. He called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I had no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. Behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in, prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Don't fear, go, do as you said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me. And afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went 
and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now it came about after those things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance, to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living, and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. and The life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child, bore him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We bless you for your incredible kindness, that individuals can find a happy day when they put their trust in you. The awareness of guilt and shame and the fear of death is broken. We experience you in our life. You transform our expectation. You accompany us. You're there for us. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your infinite mercy. We thank you again for the cross where you turned things around, where you took our place. And Lord Jesus, we bless you. You conquered death. We welcome you here right now. The Spirit of God, we pray that you will be our teacher. We ask for these ancient words, this strange story, to come alive with relevance to us in our day. Come mighty Holy Spirit, we pray. Be our teacher. Let the truth come breaking into our lives, changing and transforming many. We pray for it, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We might wonder why this uh, strange story is in our Bibles. We might wonder, what does this little cameo picture have to say to us? Against the backdrop of God's serious judgment on the nation, his actual fury that they should be so disloyal, so wayward, God watches over his servant, makes sure that he's cared for, and as he travels into this widow's home, God is there doing an amazing thing. We're going to look into this story. We're going to see what it has to teach us in our lives today. First of all, I want us to see that Elijah is inviting this woman to trust in the true God who actually does provide. Notice he's inviting her to take an extraordinary step of faith. He invites her to put God first, to come out of her unbelief, to make a radical step of commitment straight away. Elijah believes in the living God. He is living by faith in God. And he says to this woman, come on, put your trust in God. Put God first. Find that he is an 
absolutely faithful. And so he is a wonderful example of the Christian speaking as we often have opportunity today to those who don't yet believe and to invite them. Come on, put your trust in the living God. Notice he's not going with instructions of how to cope with a famine. It's not certain rules, how to adjust your budget in difficult circumstances. And the Christian faith isn't a lot of instructions, how you could do better, ways of self-improvement, how to cope with life, 27 lessons on how to cope. No, it's come and find the living God. Come and experience him for yourself. And happily, and we looked at this last time, she makes that extraordinary step. She puts God first. She says, okay, you have this meal. I've just got one meal I give it. I surrender it. I put God first in my life. I'm going to make that step. I'm going to make that step of commitment, of faith and trust, and say, okay, let me find if this God is faithful. And so many in this room have done that. They've said, yes, I'm putting God first in my life. And in doing that, we're saying, Lord, you're the creator, and you're the provider. I'm trusting you to provide for me. That's what she's doing. And the story tells us, yes, supernaturally, the provision was there. That's not unique in the Bible. You find that God, from the beginning, when he invited people to trust him, took responsibility for them. If we step into his sphere, if we say, yes, God, I want to be yours, he says, right, I take the responsibility. And so you'll find, even for a whole nation, when God sends Moses down to Egypt to call out the two million Israelites that are in slavery there, being terribly beaten, treated shamefully. God says, now go, call them out. And they're called out into, yeah, a desert. They're going to walk through a wilderness. They're going on a long journey. But the God who created them and called them takes full responsibility. So daily... There's manna supernaturally provided. There's this miracle food is there. Water is provided. They walk through the desert and God provides every day. Every day they wake up, there's the provision again. That's the way it is. God providing for his children. And that illustration now is just in one home with a woman who's saying, okay, I'll put God first. I'll trust him. I'll look to him to be my provider. When Jesus came on the scene, he said to people, follow me. Leave your nets, follow me. Come and be around me. Come and put your life at my disposal. Come and trust in me. Put first the kingdom of God. And everything else will be added to you. These teachings of the Lord Jesus as he gathered disciples, we read about in the Sermon on the Mount, he took them up into a mountain and then he began to teach them. The crowds gathered too, but it says he's with his disciples and he's saying, look, I don't want you to take anxious thought. I don't want you to be like the unbelievers who are anxious and concerned. What will they eat? What will they drink? What will they wear? Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of. He will provide for you. And so the Christian learns that ultimately God is our provider. We may have a job. We may have circumstances where we earn salary. But as believers, we look beyond and say, no, God is the ultimate provider. God will provide. God will lead me. God will meet my need. God will provide what I need. It's basic to our relationship with him. It's a step of faith, too. As we are often called to put God first, to make choices that say, right, God comes first. As she was invited, come on, give me first. We make choices. So week by week, 
as we, we look into our financial resources or from time to time when we have our special gift days and, and remember the poor in other nations or projects that we're going for here in Brighton. We say, yes, all right, Lord, you come first. I put you first. We make choices, sometimes huge choices. Okay, Lord, I put you first. And again and again and again we find God provides. He just meets our needs. Extraordinary stories can be told. How God gave back. God supplied. We found, we, hey, we've got a, a rise. Or, hey, we've got an inheritance. Or something happened. And again and again and again, this God just provides for us. That's our experience. We're not just religious people. We just haven't got a number of lessons, you know, how to live a good life in a difficult world. No, we found God. And a God of wonderful provision and kindness and mercy who promises, I'll never fail you or forsake you. And just as this woman is given the promise, it will go right through the family. It will go right through this season. So we know God will always be there for us. He will provide. He will supply. Especially as we put him first. Especially as we learn the lesson Jesus gave. Give first to God. Give first to God. You'll find God puts everything else in place. Give and it's given to you. Pressed down, shaken together and still running over. God provides. That's the testimony of this woman. That's her experience. And that's the experience of the modern believer. God is an amazing provider. That being the case, we might be surprised to find what happens next in the story. This sudden turn, this terrible passage of pain and agony. Having God provide for her does not make her immune from tragedy, heartache, pain. Because in the story, as we read it through, her son begins to grow sick. And we might think of her in her home where every day she's pouring out this oil and it keeps coming and the, the flower's still there and the supernatural provision. And here, her son is growing weaker and weaker and weaker and dies. And she has to face this extraordinary thing that, hey, what's going on here? God provides, but listen, still I'm vulnerable. Now, it's so important, dear friends, that we, we see this balance, we let this story speak to us. It's very consistent with what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, God will provide for us as we go through this wilderness. Even as he provided for the Israelites as they went through the wilderness. Manna every day, supernatural water provision, their shoes didn't wear out. God just supernaturally meeting their need. But it's so important to understand that wilderness was not the end of the journey. And for the believer, although God is a wonderful provider and cares for us, this life is not it. We haven't arrived. We're not at our destination. We're not at that safe Haven. We haven't got there. God will provide for us on the journey, but we haven't yet arrived at where God is bringing us to. And while that's the case, yes, we shall have fiery trials, sudden tragedies, heartbreaking experiences that will fill us with consternation and pain and and turmoil. We will go through such times. The Bible doesn't say that won't happen, rather the opposite. It tells us don't get too attached to this world. It actually says don't store up in this world where moth and rust come and the thief comes to steal. Don't put too much confidence in now 
set your hope on what's ahead. Because in this life you are still vulnerable. God will provide, but we are still vulnerable. In fact, you'll find wonderful promises like this. In 1 John, that's John's first letter, in chapter 3, he says this, Even now we are the sons of God. It's a wonderful privilege. When we ask God to come into our lives, we give our lives to him, even now we become the sons of God. But then it goes on to say this, But it does not yet appear what we shall be. For when he appears, we'd be like him. Now that's home. That's the end. That's the complete. And so we get these contrasts that are often there in the scriptures. Now and not yet. Now is great. Even now we're the sons of God. He's meeting our need. Supernatural provision. Loving care. Walking as with a father. Even now we're the sons of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. So we're not to put our roots down too deeply here. We're not to be too fascinated with this passing age. God will meet our needs, but we've not yet arrived. We're not yet home. This is a temporary phase. We ourselves, the scripture says, are like grass. It grows, it flourishes, it withers, it fades, it dies. And although this story is a sudden invasion of a death... Actually, death is no surprise. We're all going to die. Although it invades this home suddenly, it's not like, well, where did death come from? No, no, we we understand. The human race will all die. This is a temporary thing. We're living in a temporary existence. We mustn't become over-fascinated with it. There's death on every side. We need to take that into account. Death and tragedy are not strangers. And God's provision of his fathering and shepherding care doesn't mean that we won't experience pain and loss, heartache, and sometimes agony, really, and perplexity. Death is our last enemy, the Bible says, and it hasn't yet been conquered. One day it will be conquered. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy to be overcome is death. That still faces us, that's the enemy, that's ahead of us, yet to be conquered, yet to be trodden underfoot. Meanwhile, we're not to be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing was happening to us. That's the very loving and pastoral lesson that Peter, the apostle, writes to the young churches, don't be surprised. Now, one of our problems is that when we hit the problem and we're surprised, because, well, I thought that now I'm a Christian, everything will be easy. I thought if God's going to provide more, life will be easy. No, 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 actually very much the opposite, especially in these early days, and especially in nations even today around the world, where there is no Christian message. Many of Peter's contemporaries would have lost their lives because of their faith as they're thrown into the arenas, as they're destroyed and wiped out. And Peter says, no, no, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be shocked. It is possible to give a kind of message as though Christianity is saying, no, everything will be okay now. But that's not actually being faithful to the Bible. God will be with us. God will provide for us. But don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing 
was happening to you. That's what Peter says. As though, oh, well, this doesn't belong here. This is a strange thing. No, no. In the world you will have tribulation. All who live godly shall suffer persecution. Jesus said, Paul said, these sort of things. No, there will be tough invasions. There will be things you can hardly comprehend, but, and they get through to you. They break your heart. Break your family. Bring agony into your experience. We need to understand that we are still fundamentally very vulnerable. 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul says this, We know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. At best, we're in a tent. At best, we're vulnerable. Suddenly, our life can be snatched from us. Suddenly, the rope can be pulled, and we never dreamed such a thing would happen. Sometimes we think, yeah, our three school years and ten, they're guaranteed. No, no, that's not what the Bible's saying. We'll be looking in a moment at some of the New Testament stories that illustrate that. But when death suddenly breaks in, or a crisis suddenly hits us, how we handle that is so, so vital. And we see in the story how the widow responded to it. The widow's response was a very sad one, an understandable one in many ways, but it's very instructive to us. There she is in this home, this man of God's come along, she never knew God. And now this Elijah's come and said, now put me first, I represent God, and, and, and with courage and faith she does it. And it happens in terms of the supernatural provisions there, her life is spared, her son is well, it's not last meal and die. Hey, we're, we're eating day after day, and wow, this is amazing. And then suddenly it all goes wrong. Suddenly it's not what you expected it to be. And she is so heartbroken and she speaks pretty harshly. Verse 18, she says to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance, put my son to death. I mean, this is uh, suddenly putting all the blame on Elijah she feels bewildered. She feels, what's the point? One minute our life's saved, next minute my, life's, my son's life's snatched from him. And the futility of it captivates her. She's just taken over. She, her faith is in a tailspin. She's in emotional turmoil. And she goes through such a bad thing. She, she, she sees things as futile, bewilderment, sense, a sense of alienation. What have I got to do with you? thought you were supposed to represent God. Alienation leading to fear and a sense of personal rejection. I thought, I thought. Some of us who have been in pastoral ministry for a long time will know we encounter often a young Christian who, yeah, I've just begun my Christian life, I've been walking with God for a few years, and suddenly, hey, what is this invading my life? It's tragedy. I thought this was going to happen. Now, he's gone. I thought this was going to happen. And that's all broken. I just put all my hopes in it. And it's gone. And what comes with the pain is often a sense of, I feel rejected. I feel not loved. And you're telling me about your God. Where's my God now? And the sense of withdrawal. And so some will start running the Christian life. And then a crisis will happen. They say, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm withdrawing. Maybe you've even been through such a period. Maybe you used to be a churchgoer. 
And then things went wrong for you. And you said, that's enough of that. It doesn't work for me. That kind of language is very modern. It may work for you, it doesn't work for me. As though, as though it could be true for you, it's not even true for me. No, no. There's no way there. And you will have found, if you had begun to put your trust in God, that when you go off away like that, it's kind of cul-de-sac. You have in the end to do your turn and come back in again. And say, well, where are you, God? This woman is full of bewilderment, personal rejection. She withdraws. Can't understand. And of course she begins to blame the man of God. And we can sometimes be, ah, oh, church people. Church people, oh, they make it sound, oh, it's not real. And then she goes through this terrible agony, this distress, and she's lost her dear son, her dear boy, that meant so much to her. Strangely, also, a kind of guilt comes to the surface. You've come to remind me of my sin. You holy people, you religious people, make me feel bad. And so some of that begins to surface. And we, we don't know if she's speaking of a particular sin or just an awareness when she's alongside Elijah, this guy, the, something about him. But whatever it is, she's aware. And it's almost like, okay, it was covered over, but... Uh, and it's almost like I'm getting my just desserts. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God judged her boy because of her sin. The Bible doesn't teach that sort of thing, that children die because of parents' sin. That's not in there. But she's feeling her awareness of shame and guilt. And when things go wrong, we start asking ourselves questions. Well, was there something wrong with me? Is God getting, getting back at me? That's really what this story is at its nub, at its heart. It's interesting, John Stott, the great Bible teacher, says this, it's part of the glory of being human that we are held responsible for our actions. It's part of the glory of being human. It's part of human dignity. That God doesn't treat us like some animal. We have the dignity of being human. God takes seriously. It's part of our glory. But what we do, God takes note of. And again, Stott says this, the Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man seriously. Not just something that emerged. Man made in the image and likeness of God. So God takes sin seriously. But this woman's getting bewildered. She's aware of sin. We can't just brush it under the table. But with her, she's got this sense of vanity. What's the point? And beloved, we can feel that. You can feel in our modern world... What is the point? And often your progress as a young Christian turns on moments of pain like this. What will you do with a moment of suffering? We're all going to suffer. It's a horrible thing to say from a platform, but I'm afraid it's true. You can't avoid it. It will happen. We will all have heartbreaking experiences. The big challenge is, what will you do with it? I was saying to some students recently when I was away at a weekend, don't waste your suffering. Suffering can teach you many things. Suffering can bring you closer to God. Suffering can help you make good choices, get you clear on issues. Suffering can become a friend to you, a teacher. Don't waste your suffering. Don't just turn it into bitterness and emptiness and bewilderment. 
It can come in in a bewildering way. But let it be your friend. Let it teach you. Let it, let it free you up from putting all your trust in transient things. We will suffer. But what are you going to do with your suffering? We've got to learn to handle it wisely. Handle it well. And not just throw in the towel. Say, oh, what's that point? It's all vanity. It's interesting, the book of Ecclesiastes has that famous line in it. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The book of Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. It's uh, written by Solomon, regarded as the wisest man on the earth. But a repeated phrase comes again and again, under the sun. And it's a view of an intellectual genius, if you like, or a brilliant man, reviewing everything, but from an under the sun perspective. Not from an I stand before God perspective. Elijah's perspective is this. The God before whom I stand. He's not just under the sun. He's under God. He's face to face with God. He's not just looking from a human perspective. And certainly often, if we're looking merely humanly, as Ecclesiastes will say again and again, what's the point? A man does this and this and this, it all comes to nothing. There's no point. It's futile. In fact, in this translation, it puts in the margin. Margin. Futility, futility, all is futile. Now the Bible actually says this, that God has, in his anger with the human race, brought death and destruction. Just as with Elijah's day, he brought the drought. God was furious with them. And so Paul's assessment of world history says in Romans in chapter 8, And verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It didn't volunteer. God subjected humanity, creation, history to futility. There is a futility. God has made it happen because man has turned away from God. Instead of honoring God as the creator and respecting him and saying, God, you made all things. Man has turned away and served the creature instead of the creator. He's made his own God. He's chosen to go his own way. He's made his own choices. He rejects God's clear black and white distinctions and says, no, let's blur them. Let's have our own distinctives. Let's make our own decisions. We will be as God. That's the root of human sin. We will be as God. We will make our choices. And God's judgment is says, right, okay, I'll let you go. And you'll find futility will come that way. But it says in this wonderful verse, he puts it under futility in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's a coming a day when this distorted creation, which sometimes thinks, ah, oh, it's just futile. And that's why we mustn't see this as our home. This is not our home. This is where we're passing through. We're passing through this wilderness. God will provide. God will be faithful. He'll be kind. Sometimes we'll hit something that just speaks of the futility of this world. Our young one's gone. Pain, the agony of it. Oh, God. But we live in hope. What do we live in hope of? But even now we're the sons of God, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. We should be like him. Not only will we be like him, but the whole creation is going to be born again. He'll create a new heavens and a new earth. That's where we're going to. That's where we've our, set our focus. We're just passing through this perplexing stage with a wonderful shepherd to guide us, 
provide for us, but we don't put our roots down here. We don't live for here. God's opened our eyes to the reality of it. This poor woman is meeting with the futility of it. She's meeting the agony of it. She turns against Elijah. What's the point? You're trying to bring my sin to my charge? The agony of this poor woman. In contrast, let's look at Elijah's response. Elijah responds as a a truly mature servant of God and his response is very different in fact we could argue this is the whole point of the story I guess if this part were not in the story the story wouldn't be in our Bibles people were dying in this cameo where the man of God is there's potential for something else to happen and this man of God begins to fulfill his role but we can say this although this world is not it Although this life is not the life we're ultimately called to, nevertheless, God is willing to invade our cameos, our households, our families, and he's willing to be accessed and asked. He's willing to, in response to prayer, come in with mercy and grace right into our homes. It may not always happen, But here we see an extraordinary thing that God will be prayed to. Actually, God will answer. He's a wonderful God. In fact, the way he's going to prove soon in this whole wider story that he's the authentic God is that he answers prayer. That's how this story is building up. There's going to be three years of famine and then the nation will be summoned to a mountain, Mount Carmel. And then the whole issue will be this. Which God answers prayer? And so we'll come to that story one day. And the prophets of Baal try and get their God to answer, but there's nothing coming. And Elijah calls on God. And the God who will answer for the big picture, who's interested in world history, is actually interested in your home and your prayers. And although you could say, this woman doesn't even count, she's just some little woman, God is willing to show his massive faithfulness on a global scale in your life and her life. You can come to God in your distress. You can ask him, you can seek him, you can come to him. And Elijah is going to do that. In fact, if you like, this is part of Elijah's training before the big Carmel encounter. So we see Elijah... As a model prayer, prayer is difficult, isn't it? It's mysterious. We find it hard speaking to an invisible God. But Elijah is often set forth as one of the great prayers of the Bible. There are others like Daniel and Moses, Hannah. Great prayers who got hold of God and called down an answer. But this little story... It's got so much to teach us about prayer. Let's just look at it for a little while together. First of all, we are told this too. (laughs) Hallelujah. Elijah is a man just like us. In other words, this is open for you and for me. We can learn lessons here. We can get to get hold of God. This mighty weapon of prayer. Let's see some of the aspects, characteristics of his prayer. First one, he's compassionate. 
Do you notice he doesn't get offended? He doesn't say, how dare you speak to me like that? Don't you know I'm a man of God? Why do you put it to my charge? What's it got to do with me? You don't find that at all. You find this man of prayer, he just brushes that aside. It's important, dear friends, if you want to be a woman of God, a man of God, that you don't get taken up with sometimes people speaking harshly to you. We've got to show compassion and kindness. We've got to realize, oh, she's probably hurting. She spoke to you harshly. Yeah, I know, but it's so good to learn, to bear with people, to forgive, to give away mercy. Who knows what she went through this weekend? Who knows what's happened to her? Don't be quick to offend. You won't become, I don't think, a real prayer warrior if you're prone to quick offense. You just get taken up with the issue. She said to me. Now you've got to brush that aside. Poor woman. Boy, she's going through it. He's very compassionate. He cares. He's not easily offended. He became an intercessor. An intercessor is someone who stands on behalf of another as their representative. And we're called to intercede. Some people would say, well, some people are intercessors. I think rather the Bible teaches we are called to intercede. We mustn't make intercessors some very strange, mystical people who they really know. We're all called to intercede, to stand on behalf of others. Especially as we live in a town like Brighton where few people pray for themselves. And we'll meet hurting people all the time. Or maybe we've just helped someone become a Christian and they, oh, they've disappointed you too. They stopped coming. They've turned away. They, oh, I thought I got them through. I thought they came to our firm. And uh, no, no, this is where you've got to become an intercessor. This is where you say, well, I know the Lord better than she does. I know the Lord better than he does. I, I've been going longer. I know he's faithful. They're not learning to pray. They're just offended, bewildered, withdrawing. No, no, now's the time to stand before God. That's why Saturday mornings here at our prayer meeting, probably the most important meeting of the week here. You read Jim Simbola's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, about his church in New York. He says, the prayer meeting, most important meeting of the week. That's where we stand before God for New York. This is where we stand before God for Brighton. We come to intercede, we come to stand with other people. Now they've given up. And so he's compassionate, kindness and compassion. He begins to stand in her place. He begins to ask her questions as though it was his. Now, have you taken his life? Have you taken away the, 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 the son of this widow who's caring for me? It's like her pain becomes his pain. Her questions become his questions. It's not a formal deal. He's not saying, oh God, bless. No, no. Lord, I, I, I'm, I pick up her pain. I pick up her distress. I, I pick up her bewilderment. I make it my bewilderment. Father, what are you doing? That's real intercession. That's taking the place. Feeling the pain. Sensing, God, I'm going to come. I know you. I believe you. I bring, her, I bring her complaint. She's not bringing it to you. I'll bring it. I want to feel it. I want to impress upon you. It's one of our highest callings, dear friends. If you know Jesus, you can pray. Let's show compassion. He was compassionate. Her agony became his agony. So he was compassionate. Secondly, he was wholehearted. It's very, very stirring that he took the boy, said, give him to me, and, and then laid him 
on his bed. When you've got a corpse on your bed, it's now your problem. I always think it's staggering that he did that. I didn't, he didn't say, oh yeah, I'll pray. Thanks for telling me. I'll pray about that sometime. No, no. Give me the boy. He's on my bed. If we don't get this solved, I'm not sleeping tonight. That's huge, isn't it? That's wholehearted. It's, it's saying, I will take your problem and make it my problem. Wholeheartedly. He takes the child. He's not religious. He's not praying the sort of prayer that's just... So many people of our generation, they want to say, oh, praying is just a psychological crash. There's nothing there, of course, but let's pray. Say a prayer. Prayer is good for you. It kind of gets rid of uh, inner build-up of turmoil. Just say things out into the sky. And if you can say, your will be done, that helps. Kind of just yield. This isn't that kind of prayer. This is not a, all right, your will be done, Lord. Now, we know that Jesus taught us when you pray, say this and this, your will be done. But there's a horrible danger of that becoming absolutely passive, fatalistic. And we can get into that case, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be, make that prayer. That's not prayer. That's not Bible prayer. But just saying, well, this is the way it is. No, 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 this guy, he has got a a different view of prayer. For him, prayer is going to release energy. The prayer that's referring to him in James chapter 5 in the New Testament, where he is set out as an illustration, it says, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. One translation says, is powerful in its working. Makes power available. There's energy words in that passage in James 5.16. It releases power. It's so important, dear friends. When you and I pray, we realize I am releasing power. It's effective in its working. Prayer is not just doing my duties. Oh yeah, I said my prayers. It's releasing power. When a church prays for a city, we are releasing phenomenal power. We are releasing power in this town when we pray. In our small groups, and our church prayer meeting on Saturdays here. This is a power thing. So important. If it's just a duty, if it's just, oh well, whatever your will is, Lord. No, 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 that's really, really missing it. Very sadly. And it gives no account for what's happening here. I want to give you a quote. It will come on the screen now. P.T. Forsyth, famous theologian of an earlier generation, said this. He says, lose the importunity of prayer. Lose the real conflict of will and will. Lose the habit of wrestling. The hope of prevailing with God. Make it mere walking with God in friendly talk. And precious as that is, yet you tend to lose the reality of prayer at last. That is such an insightful Quote, man was a great theologian actually, but obviously knew a thing or two about prayer. Let's just stay with it for a minute. Lose the importunity of prayer. Lose the real conflict of will and will. That's a daring thing to say, isn't it? That's a daring thing for a God-fearer to say, the conflict of will and will. You look at Moses' prayers. They're outrageous. You said... It's a conflict of will and will. It's not, oh, well, if that's the way it's got to be. No, 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 no. Lose the conflict of will and will. Lose the habit of wrestling. The 
hope of prevailing with God. We've got enough illustrations in this book to show human beings, men and women. Hannah, give me a child or I'll die. She prevailed. Moses saying, what will happen if you don't? It's wonderful stuff. It's the high privilege of being a son of God. It's one of our highest callings to prevail with God. He says, lose those things. And then it's very insightful. Make it mere walking with God. Friendly talk. Now that's, it says, it's so helpful. It says, precious as that is. See, some of us will say that. So, well, actually, I don't set aside time to pray. I talk to God all the time. You think, wow, that's impressive. Talks to God all the time. But he's saying, beware, because although that's precious that God's in my life all the time, of course that's wonderful. But ultimately, Forsyth is saying, you will lose what it is to have the privilege of calling down things, of, of asking God, wrestling with God. And here we've got a man wrestling with God. It's physical. He lays his body on the boy. It's not like he's trying to pass his life to his life. You know, we mustn't misunderstand it. But it's like so total in his devotion. It says about, see, sometimes, oh, we don't have to be emotional. I remember a friend of mine saying years ago, people say, you don't have to shout. God's not deaf. To which his answer was, nor is he nervous. <laughs> it says about Jesus, he threw himself on the ground and with strong prayers and cries. It says in Hebrews, he was heard. With strong prayers. We mustn't dismiss our oh, emotional, I'm just talk to God. No, no, Jesus, Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Threw himself on the ground. This is physical, this is energy. And he was heard. This prayer model here is wholehearted. Next, it's persistent. After one season of extended prayer, crying to God for this boy, he leans back off the corpse. No breath, no life, no heartbeat. He's prayed, prayed, nothing. So he goes again, lays on him again. Prays and prays. Jesus told prayers, uh, parables about those who pray and don't give up. We haven't time to look into them now, but Jesus speaks clearly about a widow woman who says, come on, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice to a judge. And in the end he says, okay, okay, this woman's going to beat me up. Another time when someone's knocking the door of a friend because he knows you've got food in there and I've got someone here who hasn't got any food. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And Jesus commends this. This importunity, this persistence. Ultimately he lies on him this third time and prays a third time and there's a cough and a splutter and there's the boy. He prayed right through. He got through till he got the answer. He prayed through to the answer. He just didn't say his prayers. He didn't say a prayer. He prayed till he got it. Still being prepared, no doubt. It's training season for Elijah. Soon he's going to be on Carmel. He's going to be praying for the rain. And you know the story, or many of you will. 
I praise. And seven times, three here for this boy, three, this is training, seven on that big day. It will rain, he says. Now go and have a look. And the boy goes and says, not a cloud in the sky. I'll pray some more. Pray, oh, please God, where's the rain? Go and look again. Looks, nothing. Oh, let's pray again. So I thought prayer would, but why is prayer so complicated? Why don't we just ask and get it? God knows. <laughs> I suggest we're not going to make God a press button. We live in that generation, don't we? Our parents would be staggered. Or our forefathers. I remember being in India, seeing a lady who was collecting wood. Collecting wood all morning. What are you doing? I'm collecting wood. What for? To prepare a fire. What for? For the meal today. We just, to the switch. And we're thinking, God, switch. Come on. No. No, not always like that. And God testing us, trying us. You're going through some delay? Elijah was persistent. It says about James, who was one of the three, and again, one of these dilemmas, one of these strange, futile things, it seems. Jesus had 12 disciples. Three of them especially prizes them, gives them privilege. Come with me into this amazing miracle. Come with me to the mountain where you see God. Come, special treats, Peter, James and John. You think, boy, these guys are going to have an amazing life in ministry. They're obviously set apart, except as early as Acts chapter 12, where the church has barely started. James is beheaded. You think, but this guy's going to go miles. And that's where we find it so perplexing. Why a choice man? Why a man who was specially favoured? Why a man who looks like he's getting special training? Why a man you think, well, you can guarantee he's going to have a long ministry? God gave him special training. Jesus included him in the three. Obviously, that means that's a long life there. Look at his potential. You can think the same about young Stephen at the beginning of Acts. His wisdom, his faith, incredible man. You think, wow, what a life he's going to have. No, he's not. He's the first Christian master. James is hot after him. These guys say, wow, what a perplexing thing. Life's full of perplexing things. But you get that story here too. It says in Acts 12, James is beheaded. King Herod says, hey, the people appreciated me. At least the religious leaders were happy that I did that. And so he throws Peter into prison. Says, right, tomorrow your head's coming off. And then this wonderful phrase we read in Acts 12, verse 5, prayer was made for him. Prayer was being made, present continuous, fervently by the church. So you get this huge dilemma. Hey, why did James get, well we don't quite know, but Peter, they prayed, and they prayed fervently. God, don't let Peter be taken. Don't let Peter die. We want him. And a church gathered, they're fervently praying. This is an angel came to the prison, opened the doors, Peter walks out. Wow. That's a powerful praying church. Persisting until Peter is released from prison. So he's praying, is compassionate, wholehearted, persistent, believing. It is believing. It's not just arguing, it's believing. Really, I believe we only persist because we've got faith that God will do it. You only persist because ultimately you think, 
I can get this. It was believing prayer. That's why I didn't give up. Although there was no previous story of resurrection in the Bible. He couldn't say, God, you did it for. No, you search your Bible. No one's been raised from the dead yet. But he still believes. Got a great, great view of a great God. And finally, he was successful. Hallelujah. He was successful. He, he prayed until, hey, here he is. He's alive. Here he is. And the massive privilege of taking this boy and saying, there you go. And she says, now I know. Now I know. You're a man of God. And the word of God lives in you. Ultimately, God will be known by his demonstrations of power. He will do it on Mount Carmel, on the big canvas. But he does it here, in this private home, where someone says, I'm going to lay hold of God. I want to encourage us, dear friends. Let me close just by saying God is sovereign. And even over the backdrop of judging a nation, giving it drought and famine in his judgment, he will still provide and he will be faithful to give a miracle. He can be sought and found. Have you found him yet? You can find God here tonight. He's a God who answers prayers, a real God. We're not just offering you advice how to cope with life. We're saying you can find God. Or maybe you started, or maybe you said, but it all went wrong for me. I thought, I thought. See, we come to God with lots of thoughts, preconceived. I had thought, if you're God, maybe you were offended. Maybe you've stayed away. Maybe you began, but backed off. Maybe you came to an alpha, but mm, I don't know about this. You walked away, you got upset. This woman got very upset, but God showed her enormous mercy. In the midst of judgment, God shows mercy. In our awareness of pain, Jesus doesn't come to emphasize our sin. He says, oh man of God, you've come to remind me. Actually, he hadn't. Jesus didn't come to make people... When others were pointing the fingers, I don't condemn. I didn't come to condemn. Someone said the law came to rub it in. Jesus came to rub it out. He gives body for body. He, he says, I'll take your place. He can be known. Recently too, God has increasingly been showing himself so powerful in healing the sick. We've been seeing more people healed probably in the last year or two than we've ever seen, and then more and more in recent weeks. I had the privilege, I was in Rabina Church in Cardiff a few weeks ago, and I'm just praying for the sick at the end, and I came to a lady in a wheelchair, and I prayed for her. I went on to the next person. She told me later, she said, while you were preaching, she said, at one point you looked at me, which I didn't, <laughs> and she said, as you did... God said to me, stand up. She'd been in a wheelchair for 23 years. And then when you came and you laid hands on me and prayed for me, then you went on and said, God said to me, stand up. 
So I stood up. And then I thought, I am standing up. And then she walked. This was a leaders event on a Saturday. On the following day, on the Sunday, she came to church and Andrew, the pastor, said, I expect many of you are wondering, why is Maggie sitting in the middle of a row and not in her chair? Maggie, come and tell us. Whereupon Maggie stood up and walked to the front and people's eyes were popping out of their heads. Andrew said there were tears all round. And she came to the front and she stood there and one of her first remarks was, aren't you all short? <laughs> Andrew's not a very tall guy and she stood next to him and said, aren't you short? And then she told the story of how God had healed her. And she's been writing to me since and I've just had another email from her. She said, I've written to all the authorities I've said to them, I believe in Jesus, who's forgiven all my sin, and I've prayed, and he's healed me. And she said, uh, so I don't need my disability pension anymore. So I wonder what they'll think when they open the letters. <laughs> Last weekend I was at Matt Hosier's church in Poole. Well, again, we had a Saturday leaders thing the day before. So good this way. <laughs> God healed several. On the Sunday morning, first hymn, and then Matt said, let's all stop. I want to hear some testimonies. And a couple came forward. One woman had been sick since she was a very young girl. Completely healed, radiant, bright. Another guy came. He said, I've been in such pain for a long time. He said, when I wake in the morning, I'm in such agony. When I go down the stairs, first thing in the morning, he said, I have to go down them backwards. I can't walk front ways down the stairs. And he said, yesterday, when Terry prayed for me, he said, the pain's gone. He said, I ran down the stairs this morning. Yes, God. That's last Sunday. At the end of the meeting, we were still praying for people till 20 to 2. Meeting finished at noon. God was healing lots of people. We'll pray for the sick here at the end if you'd like to be prayed for. But some of you may want to say, I want to make my personal contact with Jesus tonight.